0: This is Carol Miller from iHeartRadio's Q1043 in New York. Each week, presenters Nigel Pearce and Alan Thompson bring you a taste of real British radio with a different perspective. This time, Nigel speaks with Pete Best, original drummer of The Beatles, on UK Radio.
1: Good day to you. This is Nigel Pearce and my erstwhile compatriot. Alan Thompson. We've got another dose of Teen Dreams for you, and today we have a real special. Is that not so, Alan? I think
0: it certainly is.
1: I can't say that I've wanted an interview so much as what we've got today because we're going to play a track and then we've got a mystery guest.
0: Or shall we tell them before we start? Let's tell them before we start. Come on. Well,
1: you tell them, Alan, because you've arranged it all. <laughs>
0: okay, right. <laughs> it's the one and only Pete Best, the original drummer with the Beatles.
1: And to start one off, we've got the track that uh, most people associate with it, but I know there's lots of stories behind. It's a new remastered version of Ain't She Sweet. Well, there we go. Ain't she sweet? Now, we're not on jukebox jury, Pete. That's taking you back. But can we have marks out of ten? If I was on jukebox jury, I would give Daddy 11 out of ten. <laughs> well, there you go now. Thank you very much indeed. Do we, we haven't got the squeezy that says a hit or the miss, so... Uh... We'll do that instead. That that makes for the bell. Pete, it's absolutely fantastic to talk to you, and thank you for, say, for cutting the time. Now, that was Ain't She Sweet, a record that means an awful lot to you, and really, it means an awful lot to so many Beatle fans, despite the latest publicity with the White Album, etc. Come on, there must be one or two little nuances there, or little episodes that you can relate about that track.
2: Yeah, well, it it was, you know, as you heard, it was John singing it. He was a big Vincent fan. You know, it was the old Gene Vincent number. And we rocked it up a little bit. It went down wonderfully well with the German audiences. And, of course, when we were uh, getting ready to record for Baird Kempford, went on the second trip. He'd come to see us at the Top Ten Club and loved what he'd seen. We were playing with Sheridan at that time, Tony Sheridan, and he wanted to record us with Tony Sheridan and ourselves as the Beatles. And that was one of the songs he selected. And, of course, it went out. And uh, the German audiences loved it. Um we had a lot of fun playing it, eh? uh, simply because of the fact that, you know, by this time, going into leathers, you know, people had started to call us, you know, the five little Jean Vincents. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: seemed
2: appropriate, you know, that uh, yeah. we played some of his music.
0: Well, that is a great story. Alan, you take a question and we'll do this alternative, my friend. Yeah, certainly. Um, Pete, if you can uh, sort of take yourself back uh, to that time, I mean, what was the music scene in Liverpool like? In the say the, the mid 1950s, because you were there at the time. I mean, I was around in the mid 1950s, not uh, not very old. Well. I'm slightly, well, just a bit older than Nigel, should we say? Um, but I, I can remember uh, mid 1950s music. But I mean, you lived in Liverpool when it was all happening. What was it like for you personally at that time?
2: Well, Liverpool, you know, for those who don't know, there's always been a hotbed for music. You know, even before the 60s, you know, we have come back to the trad skiffle, you name it, the crooners, we've had them all come out of Liverpool. 60s, music was bubbling in Liverpool, you know, there was still lots of rock bands around, it's just that the outside world hadn't heard the way we played it Mm. and of course when we came back from Germany, uh, the Beatles we turned into this fab rock combo you know, it was a pulsating wild, savage sound you know, four bar drum beat you know, all the other stuff Ain't She Sweet was an example of it and it was very much the case when we brought this back, the long hours we played in Germany, because we were playing there six, seven hours a week, six, seven hours a night, you know, um, and it was a long, long time to play on stage so we had to fabricate and it was one of the ones, uh, we didn't realise it, but we were growing in stature, we were growing in musicianship, confidence and the stage act was growing so of course when we came back to Liverpool, everyone in Liverpool at that time, and not knocking them, but they were pretty mediocre in as much as lightweight, yep. you know, they were very much in the style of Cliff Richard and the Shadows, Shane Fenton you know, to name but a few. We came back, letters, music which pinned your ears back, and it transformed the whole of Liverpool overnight. Because basically, every other band in Liverpool, possibly apart from two, wanted to sound like the Beatles. They enjoyed the type of music we were playing, which was totally different to theirs. So suddenly, there was Liverpool transformed into this hotbed of music. And of course, when the Beatles broke through... We'd had the, you know, recording contract with Polydor, um, which Hainsey Suite was originally released on. And, of course, then when we got the recording contract with um, Parlophone, EMI, um, and we released Love Me Do, all of a sudden, the eyes of the record business from London turned towards Liverpool. And that's basically how Liverpool suddenly evolved in the 60s. <laughs>
1: That's a very interesting and not just a matter-of-fact story, but a very personal story, and uh, that's absolutely brilliant. Now, what I'd like to do is I'm going to ask you one more question, Pete, because I want to break this up with your songs as well, and then uh, we're going to do something that probably hasn't been done on British radio for 54 years. (laughs) So, uh, the next question That's I'm going it? Yeah, well, there you go. We're teen <laughs> dreams here. Yeah, teenagers, I uh, think you've just said it in a very way that we try to put ourselves across. A teenager is a teenager in whichever generation. It's the music that makes the background that is different, whether it's skiffle, whether it's jazz, whether it's blues, whether it's pop or rock. Um, that becomes their benchmark. And you sort of hinted on that when you were talking about Liverpool's musical heritage.
2: Yes, all very true,
1: yeah. So, what I'd like to ask you is, how did you, or for those that do not know, your mother and yourself were involved with the Jacaranda? It was this vibrant place. No, it
2: was the Casbar.
1: The Casbar, was it? Casbah, yeah. Right, okay. The then Jacaranda
2: was Alan Williams's.
1: Ah, there you go. I knew you were in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the Casbar, how did the other lads get involved with you and then, you know, sort of just put the mix to how you all started, sort of playing and getting together?
2: Yeah, well, but basically what happened, my mother had this wonderful idea, and um, we'd bought this big house in Heyman's Green, which is in the middle of West Derby Village, uh, detached property, old Victorian, and uh, it had cellars, and of course we'd utilise the cellars as den rooms for ourselves, and we used to go down there with all the friends and make as much mess and noise as possible, and uh, one particular night, my mother had been watching a programme on the television about the famous Two Eyes Coffee Club, and... At the end of it, family was sitting there, and she turned around and said, we've got cellars underneath this house, haven't we? And we all turned around and said, yes. And she said, well, okay. tomorrow we're going to start turning it into a coffee club. And we all turned around and said, that's a fantastic idea. Who's going to do it? And she turned around and said, you are. (laughs) 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 So it was uh, next morning up at 9 o'clock, sleeves rolled up, and the assault on the unnamed Casbah Coffee Club at that time, started. All the friends helped out. It got to the middle of August, around uh, about August 1959. And we were looking for a band to actually open the club, um, which was going to be on a Saturday night, even though it was open all week, the music night was going to be initially a Saturday. And we needed a band to play there. And it was going to be a residency, which was like gold in those days. Now, the band which initially should have opened it, the Les Stewart Quartet, Typical of Liverpool. It broke up a couple of weeks beforehand. <laughs> and uh, George Harrison and Ken Brown, who were members of that particular band, came down and saw my mother Mona and explained the situation to her and she turned around and said, Oh, for God's sake, putting it very politely, she used stronger language than that, but uh, it's radio and I won't indulge you in that. Not at this hour of the morning. No,
1: please, please don't. We do like to, <laughs> we, we do respect our family audiences, you know.
2: <laughs> of course. Of course. And um, she basically turned around and said, oh, my God, what am I going to do? George basically turned around and said, I happen to know a couple of guys who aren't doing anything at the present moment, Mona, and they may be interested in accepting the residency. he said, George, bring them down. Okay. so the next day they landed up. Lo and behold, who do they turn out to be? John Lennon. And Paul McCartney.
1: Well, what a what a what a factual story that must be something that uh, happens once in a million years, I suppose, and a one in a million chance. So yeah, uh, it
2: was. And uh, my mother put the deal to them. They were going to get paid the princely sum of three pound every night, <laughs> <laughs> and they were playing without a drummer, so it was just John, George, Paul, and Ken Brown, <laughs> and. Uh, My mother turned around and said, okay, what are you going to call yourselves? So I can bill you, give you a little bit of promotion. John turned around and said quite laconically, we used to be called the Quarrymen. She said, John, that's fine. You're the Quarrymen, and you're starting on the 19th or the 29th of August, 1959. That was when they played at the Casper. That's how I got to know them.
1: Right, well stop there Pete because we we don't want to we don't want to have all the goodies in one show, you know. I mean or or in one go. We've got to keep it going. Now, I want to take you forward if I can from 59 to 1964. Yeah. You had a hit record which was a very good one. I've got a copy of it. So I'd like you to sit back and listen with us for something that has been on British radio or maybe many radio stations for 54 years, I want to play the Pete Best 4, and I'm going to knock on your door.
0: The Pete Best 4, and I'm going to knock on your door. Uh, Pete, because that was um, an an American hit, I think it was a juvenile American hit, wasn't it, uh, in the early 60s?
2: Yeah, we had a, it was initially released released on Decca, and then transferred over to the American market, and we had uh, quite a little bit of success with it. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But is it true that um, living in a seaport, uh, that you heard music coming from America before anybody else did?
2: So history says. Um, it, I suppose, in a way, when you look back in hindsight, we did because a lot of seamen had been through America, they were bringing music back which we hadn't heard before, you know, the likes of Presley and Vincent, long before it got to the airwaves or before it even got into the shops. Yeah. So consequently, some of the bands who were, you know, more rock-oriented than the others, you know, uh, the Beatles more so than anyone else, they tended to pick up on this type of material because it was different from the English. And that was the the whole cliché of it. It was different from what was going on on the English radios.
0: Certainly. But, I mean, at that time, were there any musicians or singers that you personally admired?
2: As regards, you know, Liverpool singers, English singers, or singers in general? Anybody.
0: Anybody, yeah.
2: Anybody, oh, at that stage, I was a rocking teenager like everyone else, you know, it had to be Elvis, it had to be Vincent, Cochran, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, you name it, you know, (laughs) I was an American idol, you know, anything which moved on that side of the water, yeah. It was good
1: enough for me. Right, now we've come back to what you said. And uh, before we go any further, everybody, you are listening to Nigel Pearce and Alan Thompson on a Teen Dream special with yours truly original Beatles drummer or Pete Best. And we're thanking Pete very much for cutting the time and giving us an insight into those hazy, crazy, heady days. <laughs> now, if you come back before you heard that fab record, and I must admit, Pete, what does it feel like hearing that record again 54 years on British radio?
2: It brought back good memories, to be quite honest, Nigel. It was uh, one of those ones which, you know, I haven't heard in a while. And when you hear it again after such a long time, good memories flood back. You know, a lot of fun recording it, a lot of fun, you know, putting the the arrangement together. You know, the old Eddie Hodge number. Yep. I remember Mike Smith, who was the A&R man who came down. um, He was, well, funnily, nice little story concerning it. He came down, he said, we've got a record that we might like you to do. We want you to soup it up a little bit, you know, put the the Merseyside feel to it. And, uh, you know, big drums, lots of harmonies, which was Vogue with Merseyside at that time. And uh, he turned around and said, we'll come and we'll smooth the rough spots off in the front room of Heymans Green above the Caspar Club. (laughs) So that became our rehearsal room to get Knock On Your Door ready to go into the studio. And about three weeks after that, we went down to London, uh, Decker Studios, and we blasted off Knock On Your Door.
1: Well, I think even after all those years, and it, it, I think it's technically a very good record, I think it sums up 64 extremely well. And I think it was actually, you know, well tailor-made for what I call the American rock rock and roll market so therefore Mm -hmm. even after all these years and Alan will agree with me I'm sure he's his own mind he's his own man we're not like that you know we don't we don't knuckle everybody here you know he does what he wants but uh, I think it's a good record Pete so I still think congratulations now we've come back to where you're starting to play how long was it when you're back you know, playing and opening this coffee bar. Did you begin to feel that you were beginning to unite and feel with the audience and they were beginning to see something that was a little bit different? I know you said that you, you roughed it up and, and obviously give it some meat, but how long was it before you started to get this repertoire between you and the audience? And the audience was saying, hey, this is something different, this is something special. And all of a sudden.
2: I think initially, uh, even without me being in the band at that stage, and I'm talking about 59 to 60 before I joined them in 60, <coughs> I'd seen it happen for the limited amount of time they played at the Casbah, they played there for about three months, then they had a bit of a tip over money and they disappeared, <laughs> <laughs> <And of course, laughs> think of the Liverpool bands again, you know. Scousers argue over a cup of tea or a price of a fag. (laughs) There you go. And it was very much a case of, I didn't hear from them until 1960 when I got the phone call off Paul and we had the offer to go to Germany. What I'd seen initially was at the Casbah, once they started playing, even though they didn't have a drummer, there was something charismatic about it. They blended and bonded with the audience straight away. And I think a lot of it was because even at that early stage, I'm talking about 59 now before they were discovered, they were playing music and harmonies, which I'd only heard on record. They were doing Everly Brothers, they were doing Vincent, they were doing Little Richard, of course, Paul's incredible voice. George was doing Carl Perkins. No one had heard about these people unless you were a diehard rocker. And, of course, when I had the opportunity to join them, and we went off to Germany, and I became the drummer with them, we nourished ourselves. You know the long hours which we played in Germany, which I mentioned before—six, seven hours a night, Monday to Friday. That was basically from seven o'clock in the evening until two o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Saturday and Sunday, we played from seven o'clock in the evening until four o'clock in the morning.
1: Good
2: grief. So that was, and that, oh, we had fifteen minutes off every
1: hour.
2: <laughs> 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 yeah, that was very, really, very nice of them to give us that. It was but indeed. As you can see it nurtured us. Uh, And this constant playing, night after night after night, our repertoire improved because we had to extend repertoires, we had to learn music Mm -hmm. while we were over there. And where did we learn it from? The jukeboxes and what was on the jukeboxes? American records. Mm -hmm. So the full circle had been completed. Even though we were in Hamburg... We were
0: still learning American material. Yeah. Well, what amazed me, uh, Pete, was that uh, when I was... Um, I've been to America a few times, actually. i uh, done some radio work there as well. The thing is that uh, where they're concerned... Can you believe that I interviewed three Americans on one programme who had never heard of Little Richard, for example, and Crystal Gale, when she was interviewed by... Um, an acquaintance of mine on Capitol Radio in London, Roger Scott he played uh, Jailhouse Rock by Obvious President, he, he said I suppose you grew up with that sort of music, did you? she said, um, well I can identify with it but I can't say I've ever heard it before now the funny thing is that uh, I couldn't believe that Americans had never heard anything about their own culture but they do still know about the Beatles everybody knows uh, the Beatles and also what you did with the, uh, the band in the early days, but they didn't seem to know anything about their own culture did, did, have you found that at all?
2: did, I think that's simply because of the fact there's so many states out there. Yeah. I think it might be that it's one of those ones, you know, some people become pretty insular in the states. We found this when we were talking to people, you know, and we took it for granted. Mm. You know, when we've been over there, and I've toured many times over there with my own band, it was a case of like, you know, have you been abroad? And I'd be like, no, <laughs> you know, and we, we found out we'd travelled to more places in America some of the people who are living
1: there. Yeah, that's amazing. So I think you could basically
2: go back as much further and basically turn around and say that could have happened with the music as
1: well. Yes, I think it did. To be mm-hmm. quite honest, now mm-hmm. um I want to take you back to Germany because you shifted us back there. You know, we, we we do let our guests take the head. You know, here because we're we're very accommodating, Pete, as I'm pro- <laughs> as you've probably found out already. Um Now we're back in Germany. I want to play a track that I really personally like again. Um I want to play the full version of My Bonnie, or the fullest version I've got. Um, and I've heard versions where the intro's cut off, and we want to come and talk about Tony Sheridan as well with you, because Alan um, tried to get an interview with Tony just before he passed away, and he regretted yeah, that, that was he, a sad loss he couldn't do it. So I'm sure Alan would love to ask a question to, to you about your time with Tony, because I'd like to hear about it anyway. So, But first, let's well. listen to this offering, My Bonnie.
0: That was Nigel Pierce speaking with the legendary Pete Best. We'll have more authentic British radio for you next time on UK Radio.